Do you, as an early childhood educator, sometimes experience tension or, shall I say, contradictions between what you're taught to be the best ways to support the optimum development of young children compared to the expectations of administrators and parents? As an early childhood college instructor, Francis Wardle sees his job as more than just teaching teachers what is best for children. He also sees a big part of his responsibility to teachers of young children as giving them advice, guidance, and practical tools for resisting inappropriate expectations from the powers that be, so that teachers can most effectively advocate for what their education and their direct classroom experience validates as being best for children's enriched learning environments. Far, far beyond the narrow and uninformed scope of developmentally inappropriate practices, sometimes mandated by authorities who've actually never set foot in an early childhood classroom, or who are mandating approaches that have long since been invalidated by current research on successful early child development practices. Welcome to the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast. I am Nene White. And Francis Wardle is back for a third conversation, this time about an important yet rarely discussed topic, which is highly relevant to the creation of young children's most nurturing learning environments for true and lasting achievement of their healthiest social-emotional development. This conversation between Francis and myself is based on an article he wrote for the November-December issue of Exchange magazine titled... Are you ready? Guerrilla teaching tactics. Francis cares. He cares about you and he cares about the children for whom you are responsible. We would love to hear your response to this conversation, so please connect with us on the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast Facebook page. Okay, get ready. Thank you, Francis Wardle, for once again sharing your knowledge and experience with this podcast's community of early childhood educators. Really glad to have you here. You're very welcome. Good to be back. (laughs) You've written an article that recently appeared in the winter issue of Exchange, uh, the, the magazine for early childhood leaders. And it very pointedly addressed the fact that teachers know best, while a lot, not all, of course, but a lot of administrators who are mandating standards, assessments, and rigidly defined developmental milestones really don't have a clear handle on, on the actual feet-on-the-ground development, developmentally appropriate practices. So I have a number of questions for you, but my first two questions are, what experiences as a teacher of teachers motivated you to write the article and you titled the article Guerrilla Teaching Tactics, which uh, the rebel in me loves. Maybe just a little too much, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure you'll forgive me. What message did you intend to communicate with that title? Well, thank you very much for the questions. Let me start with the second question and then go back to the first question. Fine. Uh, the reason I call it <clears throat> Guerrilla Teaching Tactics is because I'm a huge 
um, believer in the uh, fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers of uh, the early childhood field. Um, people like Montessori, Piaget, Dewey, Erickson, Thurbel, who was the father of the kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And most recently, Elkind has written a book, published a book about um, these uh, wonderful founders of our field. And I read the book, and one of the things that dawned on me was every one of these uh, founders of our field were um, revolutionaries. They viewed education as a way to uh, resist, change the status quo. So I looked at that and said, you know, if if that is our, our tradition, if that is our heritage, then we need to continue to do that. Mm-hmm. And the place that that has to occur is in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Why? Because, as you mentioned, in the classroom, teachers have had classes, they've taken um, workshops, they've read books about how young children learn, how young children develop, and the needs, some of the needs of young children. Administrators, on the other hand, do not know this. Right. In fact, going back to your first question, which is, why did I write the article to begin with? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I teach three classes at a community college. One is curriculum development. The second one is exceptional children, and that's about children who struggle but, and also are exceptional and are twice exceptional. And then basic growth and development. And in all three classes, I get one continuous question from my students, and that is, why are you telling us to do this when our administrators won't let us do it? Mm-hmm. So this brought to, to the forefront this whole question of why is it that I am teaching these things? Why is it I expect my students to implement these things, yet they're not allowed to do it? And of course, one of the answers I always give my students, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it's still accurate, is the reason I tell you to do these things is because you are sitting in this classroom and you understand how young children develop, learn, and some of the needs of young children. Your boss has never sat in this classroom. Right. Which makes no sense at all. Why are they the boss? Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So, and... uh, did you tell us the, the reason that you chose that title? Well, yes, I chose the title because I think that the ultimate um, mission of early childhood teachers is uh, to upset the apple cart, to <laughs> challenge the status quo, because we know what our kids need and the, the powers that be, everyone from principals to administrators to people who work for the uh, State Department of Education and the State Department of Special Education and State Department of Early Childhood Education do not know what we know because we have first-hand knowledge of our kids, of our parents, and what's going on in the classroom. And the research and the history of, of the development. The history, the research. <clears throat> many, yeah. many people who make decisions about uh, for our teachers and about curricula do not understand young children. Exactly. It's painful reality. But now, obviously, you don't want to get your students who are going to go into the classroom or have already been in the classroom and they're getting extra units from you. You don't want to get them fired. So you probably have ways for them to maneuver through the minefield of opposing factions of the administrators, what the administrators want, what the parents want, and what the kids need. So 
What? There are there are several techniques to, to um, address this issue, but the first, I think, the first most important thing is for teachers to know that they are going to be having to challenge the status quo. They're going to have to challenge what parents want. They're going to have to challenge what their administrators tell them to do. They're going to have to, if they're in a situation where they're with maybe a senior teacher or a special ed teacher comes in and tells them what to do with young ch uh, children who have disabilities, they d shouldn't just lie down and say, well, that's okay. If they know it's not, not appropriate, they should challenge what other people tell them to do. And this is particularly true in special education where the teacher has a right and, quite frankly, a responsibility to be in the staffing meeting and without getting into details about staffing, that is when decisions are made for the needs of the child with a disability. Mm -hmm. And the teacher has to be there and they have to voice what they understand to be the needs of the child, even if that challenges the experts and the administrators. What I think I want to hear from you at this point, because um, now I am, you know, of grandmother age. But when I was in that younger age, when I was going to college and learning all of these things, I, I had a really flashy, hot temper. And so if I heard this talk between you and me right now, then I would just go in there with my swords and my guns and my, you know, all of my armor and just be misrighteous. And I know that's not what you're, I, I think I want to hear more t diplomatic approaches to how do we deal with specific challenges that you know these young teachers are going to come up against and how can they maneuver around them? Absolutely. But my point still is yes. that the teacher knows. And just a little anecdote, yes. I used to be on a state uh, early childhood commission for Colorado, and I would go to meetings in the uh, capital, in the uh, state capital, and we'd have these meetings. And I would g give my position to the meetings. And at the end of the meeting, every time several people came up to me and said, you know, we believe what you said is true, but we're not going to say it. And mm -hmm. I'm saying we need to say it. Okay. But in terms of some specifics, uh, one that I go over in great lengths when we just uh, have the uh, curriculum class is that many students are required to follow what I call a canned curriculum, which is a curriculum published in some ivory tower somewhere, and then they're mm. told to implement it, not mm -hmm. knowing anything about their community, their parents, or their children. And they're required to, to um, <clears throat> implement that often in a pretty um, specific manner. And what I say to my students is, first of all, develop your own curriculum. And we go over how to do that, basically an emergent curriculum. And then simply take the written curriculum and morph what you're going to do anyway into the curriculum. And so it looks nice, but you're actually doing what you want to do anyway. <laughs> an example is, let's suppose... You've talked to the kids, and the kids come from the mountains of Colorado, which many of my kids do, and they have parents who are very involved in uh, <clears throat> wildlife and those kind of things, and the bears coming out after hibernation and ransacking the, um, the trash cans and everything else. Mm -hmm. And you've ended up with the kids deciding that you're going to do a whole unit on hibernation. And, of course, that has vocabulary, that has science, that has ecology, that has... Um, all sorts of things, caring for the environment and so on and so forth. 
So you create that curriculum and then you go to the CAN curriculum. And the CAN curriculum is usually says, well, you have the theme is four. Well, mm. you just take four and write it down as four. But in actual fact, you're doing hibernation. <laughs> and then you look at what are the goals that you're teaching? Well, you're teaching specific vocabulary about hibernation. You're te teaching science concepts, how bears can lower their heartbeat so they get through the winter, all the, the mm. fundamental stuff. And you put that as the goals and objectives you have to uh, fulfill for your lesson plan and whatever format, you just fill it out. So mm. to the administrator, you've done everything you're supposed to do, but you're still doing what you know kids are going to be interested in. Yeah. So and that's one way. Do your own thing and just morph it into the paperwork expectations that your administrator or your school or your program requires. Right. The, the second area, and, and th this comes up every time, is that administrators hide behind parents. And administrators say, well, our parents want two-year-olds to read, and our parents want two-year-olds to know how to go to the moon, and all that totally inappropriate stuff. And so what you, as a teacher, need to do is get parents on your side. And the way to get parents on your side is to convince parents of what you know is appropriate for children and what you know about how they learn they are, in fact, learning. And a couple of ideas that we use, one that we do every time in the curriculum classes, the students create a brochure to send to parents about the value of play. And in this brochure, they talk about play, they talk about how children can access playgrounds and green belts and how they can also use um, inexpensive or even free materials in the home to play. But then they list what children are learning through play. And they're learning creativity, they're learning basic science, they're learning social skills, they're learning construction techniques, they're learning all those things through play. And once parents understand what children are learning through play, many of them will come to your side and understand why play is so important. Mm -hmm. Another example, and I've never seen this, and yet it makes so much sense, is in your program. In your classroom, when you have all of your different centers, you have your block center, your dramatic play center, and your art center, and your science center, computer center, in all those centers above the centers where kids don't really need to see it, but for parents, list all the goals and objectives that the child is learning in that center. I love it. So, for instance, in the, um, the uh, block center, have a category under engineering and talk about learning the post and lintel system, learning about the strength of materials, learning about construction techniques, then have a section on vocabulary and talk about columns and talk about levers and talk about cantilevers and all the complicated vocabulary that the children are learning. And every center lists all of the specific things the child is learning. And again, if you have a, a, a program that defines in the curriculum what should be taught, just morph those over to the centers so they're being taught anyway. Right. And the thing is, you know, of course, this podcast is about social-emotional learning, but it's called the big picture social-emotional learning because it takes into and embraces 
every other area of the kid's life. And every time you were talking about all the things they're learning when they're constructing, they're doing that with their, their peers. Absolutely. And so they are learning all the cooperation and the collaboration and they're learning together and they're learning from each other. Do you want to uh, extrapolate on that element? Of it? Well, absolutely. Every, obviously we have domains and unfortunately one of the real problems currently in our early childhood and elementary uh, curriculum approach is focusing much too much on the cognitive domains mm-hmm. and not enough on the social and the emotional domains. Mm-hmm. And in every center, children are learning social skills. They're learning to uh, collaborate together, to build together. They're learning to share. They're learning to exchange ideas. They're learning from each other. So if they're in the dramatic play area and somebody puts on a big hat and the other kid says, oh, I like your hat. Uh, is there another one there? And they say, yeah, there's one over there. Why don't you wear a hat too? And we'll be, be uh, two little old ladies going shopping. You know, <laughs> and, and, and again, you get the uh, vocabulary in them. But every center, if there's more than one child in there, is going to involve social skills. And it should be. And mm-hmm. my belief, and I'm sure it's your belief, is the most important skills we're teaching at age birth through age eight is social skills. It's not mm-hmm. academic skills. Right. If and, children, and they're the basis of everything. Yeah, if children right. can, can interact with each other in a positive manner, if children can benefit from teachers and can benefit from older adults and older children knowing more than they do, they are going to learn the academics. It's going to be a slam dunk. But exactly. if they don't have the social skills and they don't have the emotional skills, they don't feel good about themselves, so they're always arguing and fighting, they are not going to learn the academic skills. Right. Okay. Now, this element of they're always argue, now arguing and fighting, there are some kids that if you have a hat, then I want that hat, you know, and then there's, and this is another side of, of social emotional learning. Absolutely. But... You model the, the behavior. You go in there and say, hey, here's a nice hat. I'll try it on. Maybe uh, look at myself as a teacher. We call this uh, play tutoring. You tutor how to, how to play. And one of the things you tutor is social play. Right. Very beautiful. The house doesn't have to be the house doesn't have to be the same. Here's another you've got a felt hat on, here's a straw hat. I want a straw hat because the sun's out. Here, mm-hmm. let's put on a straw hat and we'll go out and play in the sun. I mean this is what um teachers should be doing is um structuring so- social activity so children can learn those basic social skills. I mean uh, all skills, this is another problem we run into. We understand you need a scaffold academic skills. But we forget you need to uh, scaffold social skills. Mm. It's just, it's probably more complicated to learn social skills. I mean, look at all the people in jail. Many of them are there because they've never learned those social skills. And we should be teaching those, scaffolding those, modeling those to four, five, six-year-old children. Or, as you said in the article, they were kept from the playground because they they fought over the hat or they fought over something. Don't don't get me going on... Well, this is called the Primark effect. And the, the effect is that, um, again, an anecdote. I, I tell my students I'm old enough to have an anecdote for everything. <laughs> but I walked into one of my Head Start classrooms and this little boy was having a lot of trouble. He was running around and being disruptive. disruptive. So the teacher turned around and said, okay, since you can't do what you, <clears throat> you have been asked to do, you can't go out to the playground when the kids go to the playground. <gasps> And my jaw just hit the floor and I said, of all things this kid needs, he needs to go on the playground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
So absolutely, and we we yeah. we take away the specials, as they're called, the arts and the arts and the and the drama and the um, music from the kids who are struggling, and yet they're the ones who need it most. So a student teacher, if she's in a, a classroom with a you know an, an experienced teacher or, or a senior teacher, and the senior teacher tells the kid, "Okay, you can't go outside for that." What does the young teacher who's been in your class knows that that's exactly the wrong thing right. to do? How does she, how does she, what does she say? How does she do it so that she's respectful of the situation? But how, how would you, oh, that's yeah, a hard it's very, one. It's very difficult. And again, it really depends on her status in the program. It depends on her security in herself. I mean, there are some people uh, like you suggest you might have been who say, I don't care. Don't do that. I yeah, mean, I do have some students who who come back next class and say, you know, this happened, and I told the teacher, no, you can't do that, and the teacher was upset, but I stuck to my guns. Yeah. So there are some people like that. There are other people who are not comfortable with that, um, and then there are other people who uh, will go to the administrator and say, you know, this is going on in the classroom, and I know this is, you know, I'm subservient to the teacher, but this is not appropriate. And then another part of the, the article I deal with is we need to start making decisions in the group. So mm. those three people need to sit down together, mm. the teacher, the aide, and the administrator, and work it out and say what is best approach to meeting the needs of the child. Right. But it's not appropriate for the aide or the person at the bottom of the totem pole to say my opinion doesn't count. That is simply inappropriate. Exactly, exactly. And, and also, it's not appropriate to contradict in front of the child. Right. But uh, yeah, but I love this, this concept of collaboration and respectful collaboration. I mean, it's the only way we're going to get through this life. Right. right. <laughs> and, and, and back to that, I think also what teachers need to begin to do, and I know it's very difficult, but if they find themselves challenging uh, the powers that be, whoever they are, they need to um, qu- suggest that those people re- read certain books or read certain research. I mean, I have a, another example that ha- has nothing to do with early childhood. It was a research class. And I teach um, teach research to, to teachers and to graduate students. And one of the things I tell the students is don't assume that what the research says is, in fact, correct. You have to go back and look at the source of the research uh-huh. because it all depends on the sample and the methodology and everything else. Sure. So I had two students say, well, what are we supposed to do? We, our administrator came in and said, you need to teach according to this method because research shows this method works. And we didn't want to do it because we don't like the method. And I, I kind of stopped and smiled and said, try this. Next time he comes and says that to you, say to him, and I quote, we love research. We think research is wonderful. Could you please tell us where the research is so we can read it? So they went back and said that, and then they reported what happened. And he, they said that when, once they said that to him, his mouth dropped and he said, <laughs> I have no idea where you can find the research. <laughs> so sometimes challenging the powers that be works. Yes, yes. Just do it subtly. Just do it. We love research. We love your idea about helping children learn the multiplication tables. But could you show us where you got this idea from so we can fully implement it? 
Yes, beautiful. I think these are very empowering uh, guidelines that you're giving uh, the listeners. And um, uh, I just can't recommend your writings highly enough. Um, where, what could, how would, if they don't um, subscribe to that magazine, where could they get this information? They can, uh, I believe if they get onto the website. For Exchange uh, Magazine? Yes. Okay. I think they can get a certain amount of free downloads. Okay. Uh, or they can certainly ask to, because there are, there are um, articles online that they can download. And there's some, or not, what would be best is for their program or school or, or community college to uh, subscribe to the download um, at Exchange Press and then they get a certain amount free. Good. Okay. Well, I'll put that link into the show notes. Wonderful. Thank you, Francis. Thank you so much. Take care. I enjoyed it. Keep being that gorilla guy. (laughs) I'll try. Okay. Okay. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to read the full article, Francis wrote, and learn about the highly respected references he used, You'll want to read the November-December 2019 issue of Exchange Magazine. If you don't subscribe to that magazine, hopefully you can find a copy at your library. I know Francis would love to hear from you, and the easiest way for you to connect with him is probably through the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast Facebook page. Have you subscribed to this podcast? Subscribing is the best way to assure that you'll be alerted the next time an episode is uploaded. And we've got some great conversations coming up around topics like sharing, like helping young children and teachers too interact in the best possible ways with students who return to class after disfiguring accidents. And uh, another topic that's coming up soon is deepening and expanding the concept of nice. <laughs> and so much more. Are you telling friends about this podcast? We'd really, really appreciate it if you would. We'd also love to receive suggestions from you about social-emotional learning topics that you would like to hear more about on this podcast. We are here for you, really. Really.